Hello and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. This week I'm speaking with Toriel Kornfeldt. Toriel is a Swedish science journalist, author and speaker who focuses on biology and biotechnology. Toriel has written two books. The first was called The Re-Origin of Species and it focused on the reconstruction of extinct animals using gene modifications. We do talk about her first book briefly, but the main discussion today is about Toriel's second book, The Unnatural Selection of Us. I'm just going to read from the blurb on her website here. The advancement of new genetic technology has hurtled forward at breakneck speed. When the first genetically modified children, the twins Lulu and Nana, were born in China in 2018, it became clear that humanity was facing possibilities that we had previously only been able to imagine. It has given us the possibility to rebuild the core of humanity, but while it gives us hope, it has also forced us to face hard ethical and societal questions. With the pair of genetic scissors known as CRISPR, we could potentially choose the traits of our children and avoid aging and diseases. But with that ability comes a new set of risks. How are we supposed to handle these new tools that could end up changing our genetic material? So for this book, Torell travelled all over the world meeting people, driving this research forward, visiting fertility clinics in South Korea, oncologists in China who are experimenting on sick patients, and biohackers in the large cities of the US who want to make the new technology available to everyone. So we do cover a lot of this in the conversation, but mainly we focus on the power of this genetic technology, the unpredictable consequences, the role of AI, what CRISPR is, where it came from, why China is leading the way, what's going to change in the short, mid and long term, designer babies, the perils of changing intelligence, the game theory and ethics of designer babies, uh, how genetics could change the dating game, organ donations, pharmaceuticals, longevity, aging, and the dark side of this technology and the regulations that Torell would like to see put in place. So remember that you can get this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you like this type of content, then do subscribe to my Substack, which is linked down below. If you're watching this on YouTube, then you are on the ISF podcast channel, but you should also be subscribed to the main channel, which at the time of this podcast has about 2,200 subscribers. Uh, the reason that I have two channels is I have clips on that main channel, and then this is solely for the full-length podcast. But over the next few months, there'll be some high-quality documentary-style videos going up on leading scientists and thinkers in genetics and intelligence, that type of thing. So if you don't want to miss that, make sure you subscribe to the main channel. But without further ado, I'll give you today's conversation with Torell Kornfeldt. So Torell, the first question that I always ask is, uh, what do you think it means to be truly educated? I thought it'd be interesting to hear from you, considering you've written this book on perhaps something that uh, people don't know much about, but they really should. <laughs> uh, I think being truly educated is uh, having uh, a really broad set mm -hmm. of knowledge. Uh, you don't really have to be super deep into something, in my in my view, but you have to sort of have a sense. I think it is have to have a sense of the world around you in a, in a sort of a deep sense. And that encompasses, of course, things that we usually think about, like having a sense of literature, having a sense of politics, having a sense of the societal debates. But I think it also includes having the sense of, of nature around you to, to sort of 
kind of know the trees around you in your neighborhood or know something about, you know, what is photosynthesis, sort of understand the natural world, natural world around you. And of course, to some extent, understand the art and the culture uh, around you as well. So I think it's, it's something about really inhabiting the world, being truly educated is truly inhabiting the world and, and having a sense and an understanding of things around you. Do you, I guess, as someone that trained as a, uh, a biologist and has written so much on genetics, you mentioned the uh, the photosynthesis example there. Do, do you actually think that uh, Richard Dawkins is right when he says that actually knowing how the star was formed when you look at it in the night sky makes it more beautiful? I think so. I, I do. Uh, and I think it gives a depth. Like, it, it gives you a sense so you can compare it to say looking at a piece of art and that can be beautiful and it can really provide you with with something amazing mm -hmm. but if you look at it and know that you know this was produced uh, during a war or this was produced during a famine or this was produced during a absolutely glorious age of lots of uh, cooperation and you can see those influences in that piece of art that gives you a sort of a, a deeper mm. um, perspective, a, a deeper sense of it. Yeah, a deeper perspective. And I think uh, when it comes to the natural world, it's the same. Of course, you can can really appreciate the beauty of the natural world, but knowing things about it gives it a further depth mm -hmm. and perspective. So let's come on to your book. I've just been reading through it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating reading. I was wondering if you could tell people. Thanks how you came to write it and how you got interested in genetics. Yeah, so um, a few years ago, I wrote a book about uh, using genetic technology to recreate extinct animals. So I was working as a science journalist. I was working with the Daily Science News in Sweden, and I was feeling this sort of constant stream of news about the new genetic technology. This was uh, sort of uh, 2011, 2012, 2013. It was just, you know, there was so much things happening and working with news, I could only do these snippets of something that I saw was gonna really change society. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about writing um, about our bodies and, and genetic technology connected to our bodies, but that felt a bit daunting for a first book. So I started with a book about how genetic technology can change the natural world around us, bring back extinct species, um, change, nat change nature in a way to respond to climate change, perhaps, and, and maybe just shift our view of nature. Uh, so I wrote that first. It's called The Reorigin of Species. And then after that, I felt sort of ready to take on the, the bigger question of how will this question of genetic technology, genetic editing, the ability that we are starting to grow to change ourselves, how will that actually affect our own bodies and sort of the future of, of humanity as physical bodies? Can you give people the, uh, the cliff notes on your first book? Are, are, is Jurassic Park coming anytime soon? So the cliff notes would be uh, genetic editing will change the world around us. Uh, there will be recreation of extinct species. Uh, the first years, it's mainly going to focus on using genetic technology to 
save and recreate species that are just on the brink of extinction now. So species where you have just a few individuals left, for example, you can do cloning or editing to get rid of diseases and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, things like mammoths are still quite far away. Um, I, I, I really don't think it'll be impossible, but it has less to do with the genet genetics and more to do with things like um, elephant gestation and uh, like the, the more bodily parts of it. Jurassic Park, dinosaurs, chances very, very, very slim. <laughs> Why is that? Very, very small chance. That is because there is no actual uh, genetic material preserved from that time. So the oldest found genetic material today, um, around 800,000 years old. I think we're gonna push that. I think we're gonna find good frozen genetic material, especially with better analy analysis mm -hmm. methods. That's gonna push that back to a million year, maybe slightly further, probably. Uh, it's not gonna end up being 75 million years. Okay that that's you it's it's sort of theoretically impossible that dna hasn't degraded too much the only sort of slightly the fact that there's a slightly slim chance for jurassic park is the fact that um that birds are living dinosaurs uh so there are some researchers looking into sort of what happened as uh, what we think of dinosaurs evolved into birds mm -hmm. And is that a process that to some extent can be reversed to understand evolution more, but also maybe to create something like a chickenosaurus? Right. So, so where do you stand <laughs> first on, on this issue? Because I imagine you know, as someone that trained as a scientist, you've got a natural bias to, toward progress. But after writing about it and investigating, do you still, first of all, was that your bias? And did it change in the course of writing the book? I I went into the book, actually, this is sort of the sense that I went into with both of the books, both the natural world and, and later uh, biology, sort of with this really mixed feeling right. of, especially with, with, you know, Mammoth and Jurassic Park, part of, part of you have the, this like 10 year old, it's like, wow, this is so cool. I really want to see this. And then you have that sort of slightly more adult uh, sense of like this, this is not a good idea. <laughs> we could end up really wrong here. Uh, and I think writing about it sort of has just honestly just deepened that divide. So looking at using genetic technology in the world around us, I think it is an absolutely wonderful tool uh, in some instances. I think there are species on the verge of extinction today that we will not be able to save unless we use this toolkit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are changes um, that are coming due to climate change that will force us to make changes in the natural world that we would not choose otherwise. So uh, a very clear example would be um, some, some researchers are proposing to do genetic changes to coral reefs to make them more... Um, resilient to a change of heat and acidity in the water as climate changes. And I don't think it's impossible that we'll be forced to a point where those are our only options, mm -hmm. where the options are do genetically modified coral reefs or lose them. Um, 
And and in those instances, I think that this isn't a toolkit that we should ignore. Uh, with that said, I also think that there are uh, risks connected to it, uh, risks for the individuals that are, are being changed. So for example, changing, creating mammoths from elephants is really dicey from a sort of animal ethics point of view. Uh, but there are also risks that have to do with how we sense the nature around us. Uh, is there a risk that we start to view um, species on the brink of extinction as something that we can always bring back together, bit back later, right. and it doesn't really matter if we lose them. It doesn't really matter if if, if things you know are lost because we theoretically could bring them back. And I think there's a risk in in sort of taking away something from nature by fiddling too much with it. But I also think we're going to be in situations where where that will be basically our only choice. Is the biggest risk the fact that even bringing back I don't know, like a microorganism, an insect, um, we it, it becomes irreducibly complex when you introduce something like that into our ecosystem and we just have no real way of modeling what the you know the tenth order consequences are of doing such a thing yes yes that is that is basically the real risk and that is a risk where there are very clearly two sides in the scientific debate right where one side basically says that because there is this massive risk uh, of these you know sort of order of magnitude changes that we can't control we should um, do as little as we can and, and try to let uh, sort of nature deal with things itself. And, and, you know, we don't, since we don't understand all of these uh, ecological connections, mm -hmm. we shouldn't really start messing with it. There are several examples of people having to mess with it and really, really mess things up, introducing new species to different continents for various reasons are a very clear example of that. And you can just crash a whole ecosystem. On the other hand, you have a group of scientists that are basically saying that, you know, we are already messing things up so badly. We're already doing so much of habitat destruction. We're already changing the climate. We're already, uh, you know, um, introducing pollutants or overfishing or over, you know, using ecosystems in a different way that it would be irresponsible then not at least try to do something to counteract that yeah yeah and try to do something that can can sort of push against all of this change that we're already doing anyway um and and you know you, you sort of introducing new species or extinct species or moving species around to areas where they used to live or something like that would then at least be sort of a countermeasure to this immense change that we're already doing. I'm fascinated by the the kind of the joint arms race that's going on between AI and uh, genetics, and I, I wonder if we're going to get to a place fairly soon. Perhaps it doesn't require artificial general intelligence, but say in a couple of decades, where our predictive power through computing, whether that's quantum computing or whatever, yeah, um, yeah stuff that I have a, I wouldn't even say a lay understanding of, but I wonder whether that's going to give us the ability to um, make these 
decisions when it comes to reintroducing things and, and modifying the ecosystems because we'll be able to have a much um, higher threshold in terms of our predictive power. Do you think that's a possibility? I think that's a possibility. Uh, I think uh, looking at sort of natural systems, uh, I definitely think that's a possibility. There are already some, some, I would say quite far out there, but theoretical suggestions of putting AI in charge of something like managing a, a natural reserve or right. something like that, rather than having humans in charge of it or sort of making the decisions. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's going to grow. I think um, the problem with AI in those sort of decision-making uh, roles, it's always going to be that it, it, it will always rely on, on back data. So uh, one of the problems with, with this in, in this area compared to, say, uh, using AI in our own bodies and our own genomics is the lack of historical data. So if we are trying to sort of restore a landscape to what it was 10,000 years ago, you're really just doing educated guesses because you don't have data. Right. So we're just don't using have data models. on exactly. And, you know, in this specific GNAT, we don't know how common it was even 50 years ago because right. no one was actually measuring that. Um, and when you get those really complex ecosystems that can sort of matter in the end, in a way that's not really predictable. Is there a way that you could use the AI to predict the previous ecosystems with a high level of accuracy? Uh, maybe it's going to be tricky, but maybe, yeah. Uh, I think I think the main problem of using AI now is sort of the lack of input data uh, and using finding more of that and also consolidating the data that exists. So. Um, uh, I live in Lund. Uh, we have a really old university here. Um, not, I mean, not old compared to some of the Europeans ones, but you know, a few, few, several hundred years old. Uh, which means that there's been a natural history museum here also for several hundred years, I think, or at least a very long time. Which means that there are boxes and boxes and boxes of like handwritten notes from some guy in 1853 in July writing about what butterflies he saw that summer. Um, and most of this data isn't uh, digitized in a way that is actually useful for anyone, even less for an AI. And putting an effort into actually finding and uh, sorting through and digitizing all of this data that exists in all of the different sort of natural museums and sort of the things that exist in the attics of the universities right now uh, might sound really obscure and, 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 and strange, but I think that is a real treasure trove of looking to save uh, natural ecosystems in the future because there is so much information that no one has really cared to look at or, or systematize. So let's come on then to uh, your second book, The Unnatural Selection of Our Species. I thought we could perhaps divide the conversation up into like hopes and fears. Um, yeah. So let's start with the, the optimistic stuff. Uh, and perhaps maybe you could also walk people through the technology itself, because I imagine people have heard of CRISPR. Um, mm -hmm. They probably don't know precisely how it works. So maybe it would be good to offer them something of a uh, yeah, lay understanding and then we can go into uh, how the world is going to change for the better and we're all going to live in uh, utopia. 
Yes. Okay, so CRISPR uh, is this really, really cool tool uh, that we discovered or that scientists discovered. And I think the best way of explaining it is, um, well, we've all, we're all very, very aware of viruses right now, have been for the last few years. Uh, but most viruses are actually not attacking humans or even animals or plants. The absolute vast majority of all virus attack bacteria. And this means that bacteria need to develop strategies of uh, defending themselves from viruses. Now, uh, bacteria is just a single cell. So these strategies have to ex exist inside a cell as compared to us, for example, where we have uh, immune, an immune system that is cells running around in, in our body, basically. Um, so they have to have a system inside the cell that can recognize when it is infected by a virus, which basically means when there is virus DNA inside or RNA inside the bacteria, and they have to be able to somehow destroy it or get rid of it in different ways. So there has been a really strong evolutionary uh, pressure on bacteria to develop these kind of systems. And what happened uh, over a pro process that culminated in 2012 with a groundbreaking article by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier was that we discovered one of those systems that the bacteria used which is basically uh, a two-part system, which is a, a, a target system, a, a sort of tracking system that looks for DNA of a specific sequence uh, connected to a pair of scissors. Basically, that means that if you find that sequence, it will get cut up. Uh, and what uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna did was that they showed that this system can be used as a tool we can give it any genetic sequence from any type of um, living creature. It doesn't have to be a virus. It can be our own. It can be an animal. It can be a plant. Mm -hmm. And it will find it and it will cut it in a way that we can decide. So it's basically that that's basically CRISPR is, is finding is this sort of two part system. Uh, and that might not sound super exciting, really. But what it means is that if you know a specific genetic sequence in your own genetic code, you can find it and you can change it specifically. So either you can just cut it up uh, and then the cell will, will fix that. And it would mean that you have deleted a bad part of your DNA because some of the pieces will be lost. And so if you have a, a gene that gives you problems, that is a way of just taking it away. But when you cut things up, you can also put new things in. And so you can do, you can put in new genetic material and then you can do that in a really controlled way of knowing uh, exactly where it is. So um, uh, another way, a sort of analogy of, of understanding this is uh, you can think of our genetic material as a library. All of our genes are the different books on the shelves. And you have a librarian. Every cell has a librarian, basically, that goes around and says, you know, this book, this book, and this book are the ones we're using right now. 
everything else get left in the shelves, nothing happens with them. Uh, and the librarian usually sort of picks books that are quite close to each other. So if you're picking one book, it's quite likely that you're going to pick the one next to it as well. So old techniques for adding genetic material to cells basically consists of standing outside the library, throwing books in through the windows, hoping that they somehow end up on the shelf. And if they do, hoping that the librarian will somehow pick them up. And, and this is quite literally like the first genetic technologies were basically shooting genetic material yeah. into cells. Um, and now you can sort of send an agent into the library and place a new book exactly where you want it so that you know that it will get picked up by the librarian, by the cell. And it's even getting so um, refined that you can go in, you can go in, open a book and rewrite sentences. So inside a specific gene or a specific genetic sequence, you can change individual letters uh, of the genetic code. And you can do these things faster, cheaper, and more efficiently compared to all the methods. I, I'm quite interested, um, before we get on to like, the, the obvious applications, I'm really interested in like the, um, the theoretical background to, to the CRISPR discovery. I, I assume that, that it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't a surprise. No, but it was... Um, like, did we was... know that we were going to it... have this technology? No, eventually? we, no, that, okay. no. So at first, like the, the name CRISPR first came from some Japanese scientists and they had absolutely no idea. They were just like, we noticed that a lot of bacterias have these short snippets of genetic code mm. that can be read backwards and forwards and they tend to be repeated. We don't know what they're for. We don't know what they're doing. So P in CRISPR stands for palindromic. It can be read in both ways. Same, mm. same in both directions. And they were like, yeah, these exist. Who knows? Uh, and uh, then there was some research on yogurt in Denmark. So uh, if you're making yogurt, you want a lot of bacteria. You don't want the bacteria to be infected by virus. Apparently it's a bit of a problem. Uh, if, if in yogurt production, these virus infections of bacteria when you're making yogurt. So there were some researchers in Denmark who was like, hmm, these bacteria that have a lot of those CRISPR sequences, they seem to be getting a lot less of the viruses. That might, you know, that might be useful. We should, we should you know, maybe check for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then there was, you know, these sort of incremental steps from around the world just being like, huh. Yeah, this seems to be a immune system that the bacteria uses. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and so it, there was never a, a concerted sort of like we are looking for a specific tool. It was more of like stum not not really stumbling that sounds wrong, but you know, cumulative. Basic curiosity about how the world works. Yeah, yeah. And then in the end it's like, oh, this looks like something that is that could actually be used like a tool. So it's interesting that you, so you're you're describing this incremental, this cumulative process. Uh, so w would you say that the uh, I forget the names. One was one was French. The the two scientists who discovered uh, the CRISPR technology. Mm. Would you say that they the, these two people are geniuses, or they just they happen to be at the end of the pipeline? And this was a great testament to modern science, where like it's not 
obviously there are incredible you know 180 iq geniuses who are just weird autistic mm. people in their basement and yeah they, they still exist but nowadays it does seem like especially in the field of genetics it's much more of a team effort and the team is like japan china the uk denmark just all over the world and you know if, if you're at the end of that pipeline you you might win a nobel prize but it's less about one you know brilliant guy in his basement um discovering something is that is that the state of you would say modern yes. science and specifically genetics now Yes, yeah. Modern, I think modern science in general. I mean, there's uh, modern physics. Physics has, has traditionally been viewed as this, you know, Einstein yeah, yeah. field where you have a specific individual or, or sort of a usually male, yeah. uh, because female doesn't really get uh, viewed as geniuses in the same way. But uh, but even in physics now, um, if you look at sort of a lot of the Nobel prizes for the last years are mm. like the 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 leader of this uh, observatory of 200 employees yeah uh, because sadly sadly i think it's, it's a bit of a debate uh, there's a lot of debate about the nobel prize in sweden uh, uh, and there's a bit of a debate uh, but uh, in the testament it is very clearly stipulated that there cannot be more than three recipients right. for the scientific prizes right. uh, and that has been really debated because um, science now is not, it doesn't really work that way anymore at all in it, yeah, I, yeah. any of the fields. And well, I've heard I that even both... in mathematics that you, ha you have people who, so like you, know, I'm really interested in intelligence and um, you know, giftedness. And one of the things I've read is that even mathematicians now, you know, pe it, 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 if people listening don't know, most, mathem most mathematicians who have done something groundbreaking have done it before they're 30, right? Simply because you need every neuron firing in order to do that high-level mathematics. But I, I've heard that in the past, say, decade or so, or, say, couple of decades, um, that you take like, the, you know, the top mathematicians and that uh, mean age for discovery is actually rising into the 30s and even 40s now because uh, uh, there is now just so much knowledge that you have to... It used to be that you could you know, do your PhD if you're you know, at the age of 18, 19, if you're a genius in mathematics, and then you could contribute something by the age of you know, 24, 25. And now it's just... You, you can't do that anymore. I mean, this is my, again, lay understanding of the field. And I imagine, you know, if that's the case in mathematics, it, again, yeah, certainly is in, in physics and genetics. It's just, it will take you 10 years to accumulate even the, you know, the, the, the required knowledge to be able to make something of an advancement, uh, which you, again, probably won't make as an individual. Yes, exactly. And, and, and also, you can't really, like, everything is always depending on on everybody else even i think in fields like mathematics it's, it's much yeah. more of a collaborative uh, to some extent sort of standing on I, I really like the expression standing on the shoulders of giants mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when it comes to research because because everything everything everyone does is always building on someone else's work and of course i think that emmanuel chapatier and jennifer donna are absolutely brilliant scientists mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they they managed to do something that no one had been able to do before but also they wouldn't even have been able to think about it if it wasn't for all of that work before that um and i think it's a we have a tendency to think of these things sort of in opposition to each other mm -hmm, but i mm -hmm. think it's almost better to think them in in a combination like imagine if you are a really brilliant person 
imagine if, what you can do if you can also build on on that collaboration and other people's work yeah yeah they, well i mean that's fascinating right because this could be along with the internet the most important technology that we've ever developed and uh yeah, it came really through collaboration um even though these two scientists did did get the uh get, did get there first um okay so hopes then what how how is the world going to change in like you know five years perhaps we could do like five years you know the short term uh the midterm mm. maybe like the next decade decade and a half and then you know, perhaps the 50 year horizon mm. so five years um we are first of all going to see uh, a lot of um this technology being used for specific diseases that are maybe not that well known. So there are about 6,000 diseases that are, or syndromes that are caused by one specific gene malfunctioning or, or one of our two copies of a specific gene malfunctioning. Uh, and these, each, each of these 6,000 diseases are usually quite rare, but as a, a cumulative, it's actually really common with, to have some kind of, of sort of genetic malfunction. And I think you say uh, in your book as well that the, something like one in 5,000 people suffer from mitochondrial, uh, a, was it a disease caused by mitochondrial DNA? Yeah, so, so, so sort of the, the cumulative here is quite high. Uh, yeah, and you yeah. know, some of them are more common like uh, sickle cell anemia, um, yeah. Is, is fairly common, uh, especially with people with a genetic background from, from certain parts of, of Africa. Um, and uh, what CRISPR really can do in the short term is cure a lot of these diseases. Um, and uh, sort of just go in and remove the, the deleterious gene in some way. Uh, and that, I think, is going to have a really massive effect for a lot of people who really haven't been helped that much by modern medicine up till now, because these diseases are usually really, really difficult to treat and difficult to sort of uh, uh, treat and sort of deal with and, and understand. And each individual one can be really, really rare, so there's not that much research going into it. but. I think that's really, really going to change here. And for some of them, it's going to be pushing, pushing some limits. Maybe you have to start treatment with a baby that's already in the womb, for mm -hmm. example, because the, the, the problems start manifesting so early. But I think we're going to really going to have some, going to see some really good changes there. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, it's, English isn't my first language, so I stumbled. Swedish a bit. is, um, as, as we've already established. <laughs> I've got three words to offer you, so I think <laughs> I think you're okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we're By the way, what are the costs really... looking like on, on things like curing sickle cell anemia? Is that something that we can do for pennies eventually? For sickle cell anemia specifically, it's not going to be as cheap as, okay. say, a paracetamol, but it's going to be cheaper than some of the genetic uh, other genetic treatments. So, uh, so it's something another you area... expect to see on, like, I know the Swedish healthcare service, the, the the NHS in the UK. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Some of them definitely, okay. and some of them are going to be a bit more tricky. So we can use um, cancer treatment as an example. Yeah. 
So right now there's also a lot of, of looking into using CRISPR as cancer treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you do uh, when, when you try that is that you take, you remove cells from the patient, you remove um, uh, immunocells from the patient, and then you do genetic changes to them uh, where that will make the patient's own immune system better at uh, recognizing tumors and doing its sort of its own attack on those tumors and then you grow up grow these cells until you have enough of them and then you put them back into the patient's body uh, this has some really clear benefits first of all if it works uh, and there are some it's, it's not going to be a silver bullet but there are some really promising results uh, you're gonna ha you're gonna have a less um, uh, oh, what's the word in English? Like other effects on the body. It's not going to be as right. harsh, yeah. harsh effects, as a yeah. chemo treatment. Yeah, side effects, exactly. There's going to be some side effects because having an overactive immune system is not really a good idea. But, but you could probably deal with it. And it has proven in some cases to be super effective. And these cells are going to die off. So you're not going to be left with any changed cells in your body after the treatment because they have a limited lifespan it's also going to be fairly expensive because there's nothing here that you can it has to be personalized all of these steps have to be personalized and they have to be timed and you have to sort of spend time on them so it's not okay. going to end up being a pill okay uh, and and those are going to be the main costs for these type of uh, treatments are the fact that they are individual and 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 take time, and and those things are always make things more expensive. For some other uh, diseases, so for example, a disease called uh, bubble boy syndrome is the sort of normal word for it. It's um, a, a disease where or a syndrome where you have a really basically non-functioning uh, immune system. So a, a treatment is, or what you do with these babies is basically you try to keep them away from everything sort of in a bubble. And hmm. um, there has been some really, really promising research where you take out, out some of their stem cells that produce the, the cells for the immune system. You do genetic changes to the stem cells and then put them back into the bone marrow of these babies. So far, it's looking really good. Uh, can't really say that it's going to last for a lifetime for these babies, but hopefully you're going to have a situation where you have a continuous supply of genetically changed immune system cells in your body for as long as possible. And then, of course, you're going to have, again, have a, a, a sort of an individual treatment, but hopefully you can get to a point where that single or fairly spaced individual treatment is a lot cheaper than you know the current treatment that you have to do so then you have sort of a, a, a way in between different options basically do you know from, from a purely economical standpoint right okay okay i understand do you know who the leaders are in terms of uh, countries for gene therapy at the moment if we look at something say like i imagine it's different for each thing but like say cancer uh, yeah so a few years ago, when I was writing the book, I would definitely say China, hmm. uh, by far. 
Uh, I mean, um, or, or basically, I would say that Europe and especially US are leading when it comes to uh, basic research, when it comes to finding new things, and China are leading when it comes to applications, when it comes to actually using them and, and creating the sort of framework of, of applying them. Uh, manpower? Uh, manpower, money, uh, a really strong will to um, be as the, the next world scientific superpower. Yeah. Uh, and this 2045 um, plan to, to lead the world in science. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a, a, a different view on ethics, okay. shall we say. Uh, a, a, slight, a, a different system for what it takes to have um, something uh, approved, um, both when it comes to animal studies and when it comes to studies on patients. That's really interesting, right? It's because a lot you easier. You start the book with the story of the Chinese. I, I imagine most people have heard the story of the Chinese scientist who was um, sentenced to how many years in prison was it? Was it three years in prison and fined? Yes, he so was actually how do you just square released. That Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, I just, uh, I haven't, I, I saw this really short and no official data, no. So, yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, a Chinese researcher uh, did genetic engineering on embryos. Two baby girls were born uh, when this broke in 2018, mm. November 2018. There was also another woman who was still pregnant. Uh, and up until that specific day, China had been really, really pushing forward in genetic technology, really sort of holding the flag mm -hmm. high. Uh, and then this broke, it was a huge scandal because maybe he never got uh, the, the paperwork to actually do this. The, the Chinese governments are claiming that he did this completely rogue, like a full on Frankenstein, mm -hmm sort of more or less in his basement, never did any paperwork whatsoever. Um, there's a lot of speculation on, on whether that's more of the Chinese government mm. trying to cover their own backs rather than admit mm. that they actually allowed this. Um, and since then, uh, that, since, since then, since that scandal, it's been really, really quiet in China when it comes to genetic engineering. And uh, some researchers that I've talked to were also like, yeah, we, we're sort of pausing experiments now. There's less funding, there's less sort of push for it. It's harder to get things done. And um, so it's a bit of an, I, I think my guess would be that there's still a lot of research going on in China, especially for the applications in various different ways, uh, but it's not being publicized yeah, at all yeah. in the same way that it well, was. Well, this is fascinating, right? Because I, I imagine that there are many, uh, there's like, I don't know what they call it, like black site funding. Surely the US and China are in an arms race you know, behind the scenes when it comes to this stuff. Because like AI, it's, it's kind of a, a winner takes all, right? If you, you get there first, um, I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, what the what you would say the most incredible military applications of this technology are, but I imagine it could be so significant that whoever gets there, kind of like with artificial general intelligence, could could just take everything. Um, so I don't. What, how, how do you explain the we're going to um, publicly scold this one uh, researcher? 
but we're also we, we want to be 2045 leading the world like is it just pr yeah. if so why are they doing that i don't quite understand i think yeah i think i think there might, there is a, a bit of an arms race uh the us uh has been quite slow to waking up to the human applications uh us has been leading when it comes to using genetics in in agriculture for example or for other applications they're not um really yeah it's 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 a bit tricky when it comes but china i think so what happened was that this researcher presented his results on a conference and he stayed on and did about an hour of a q a afterwards and then he walked out the stage and he disappeared he was gone and it took uh about a week like several days before mm-hmm. there was any like official statement from the Chinese government. And during that time, there was an absolute outcry from the scientific community about how completely unethical these experiments were, that it was way too early to do uh, embryonic genetic changes on human, and the fact that those kind of changes as compared to doing genetic changes in adults will um, be inherited by these girls future children so you're not only changing these girls mm-hmm. you're kind of changing the future of humanity if you if you want to mm-hmm. uh, and i think the chinese sort of pr response of them just uh, denying uh putting him to jail shutting down everything has to do with that sort of backlash from the rest of the scientific community um do you think the average chinese and- geneticist is just as ethical as a North American or European geneticist? Um, those are the criticisms that you would hear, right, from, from yes, a Western I think, scientist. I think individuals would be equally ethical or unethical. The main difference, I would say, are the systems that, in, right. that are in place. So, so what are the sort of hoops that you have to jump through to be able to do a specific type of research? Because you're going to have a, a spectrum of, of ethics in individuals always. Um, but as a society, we create systems to sort of balance, mm-hmm. say balance ethics to sort of gain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not completely true but it sort of it gives a feel like mm-hmm. you know don't do whatever you want with human babies like we, mm-hmm. we, we're gonna put a cap here we you know doing putting them in a cage and, and never letting them meet another human being might provide some interesting research about brain development but we've kind of decided that that's not worth it that knowledge is not worth it and those systems are very 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 different between China and sort of Europe, US. Uh, that is especially clear when it comes to, uh, it's clear when it comes to human re- research on humans, there's been some quite big sort of scandals uh, about uh, Chinese researchers doing research on inmates in China. Uh, also the military, um, that wouldn't really, wouldn't at all work here. Uh, but it's also really clear when it comes to animal research. So, so doing research on, on primates, 
monkeys uh, is really difficult and expensive and takes a lot of effort in Europe and, and the US. I think from an ethical standpoint, I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. uh, in China, you can sort of get all of your paperwork done in an afternoon, right. more or less. Which also means that a lot of the research on primates is currently moving from Europe and the US to China. So European and American researchers are doing their actual studies in facilities in China, which ends up being talking about an arms race earlier, that means that the information is it ends up in China, of course. Uh, it also means that China, I think, in the future will have even more power to say, you know, you have to accept this behavior or we will stop these 10 cancer research studies you have going on that you need advice, uh, you know, you need all of this paperwork to work and we can we can always just shut them down. And China also leading when it comes to analysis of genetic materials. So uh, most labs around the world, they, they do they do the DNA testing, you know, animals, humans, whatever, but they don't really do the actual grunt work of analysis and getting the data out of these samples themselves. They send them off. Most of these samples are sent to China and then the data is sent back again. So they're and accumulating also, a lot of soft power. They really are. They really, really are. And and a lot of information. Hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I think we can talk about that uh, in the, perhaps in the second part when we go on to the nefarious uh, nefarious yeah. uses for this technology. Um, so let's move on then to like the that 20-year that time horizon. Um, I assume by this point, uh, everyone who's born in a country like Sweden, Denmark... America, the UK, will have their genome sequenced at birth? I would assume so, yes. I would assume at least sequenced. Mm -hmm. um, I would also assume that by then um, having an offering of doing genetic editing as an embryo will be regulated, at least here, most likely, but it will be an option. Uh, and and there will be a discussion of where those regulations are, rather than whether or not we should do, do genetic changes to embryos. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 even before that, was going to have a, a, a broadening of the technique that already exists, which is doing um, genetic analysis of embryos before IVF, and then uh, making a choice to remove the, those that have. Um, diseases or problems. That is something that is already done. If you have a really serious genetic disease in your family, you can get that kind of counseling and, and have, get help to, to choose an embryo that doesn't carry that gene. And I think that is going to be expanded. And yeah. I think genetic ed editing will be in countries like Sweden and I guess the UK is going to exist, but be really heavily regulated. If you happen to be super rich, you can travel to somewhere like, if things stays the same, maybe Mexico, yeah. and do your other genetic editing there. Yeah, that's well, that's to. the interesting discussion, isn't it? So, well, mm. I mean, b before we get on to that, I read that um, a few years ago, one in 10 uh, 
children in Denmark were being born through IVF. And that was the average, right? That was the mean. So if you broke that down by class, you would find that it was probably closer to 20% in the in the uh, upper classes because those are the women that want to have careers. Are we... And, and, and then if you look at other European countries, I think it was 3 to 5%, so you know, not that far off Denmark anyway. Um, do you think that's the world we're moving to? Where, you know, 20% of, say... Uh, say 20% of the top 20% in terms of socioeconomic status are having IVF? Um, or do you think there's going to be something of a backlash here and we're going to move back towards a kind of more traditional family setup because that's unsustainable and it's n- women will find out that that's not really what they want to do and maybe the technology will never be good enough to um, guarantee that you can have successful IVF. I think at the moment it was it like 30% is the success rate. So women are freezing their eggs and then at 45 they're finding out, oh, well, I can't have children after all, which is uh, probably a revelation to a lot of them, even though they're signing a waiver saying, you know, there's, there's no guarantee. Um, you know, sorry, I threw a lot at you there, mm. but what, what do you make of uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, I think there's uh, several aspects of this. One of, one of them, is, as I think is fairly small, but it's sort of what you ended with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is um, a commerce, commercialization of a promise basically. So a lot of these IVFs, especially for the, the higher income um, parts of the society, and especially for those who are older, are things that you finance yourself. They're not going through the, the NHS or the, the Swedish equivalent. And, and there, both already now, and especially with genetic editing, we're going to have a huge problem of overselling those promises and sort of over-promising what is possible to use this technology for, um, which means that people then sort of wake up to, to a situation where, yeah, it turns out they can't have any kids. And the question, I am, I'm actually really thinking about this sort of broader question of control of fertility right mm-hmm. now, because it is a really interesting question, mm. where on the one hand, you have this, um, technology, that means that uh, women or or people in general have a much bigger control of their fertility than we have ever had. So we have control over at what time we're going to get pregnant, hopefully. We have control over sort of diseases that will also minimize or lessen risks of miscarriages. And you can, you can, have a a huge at least a huge sense of control over this issue that used to be kind of kind of random uh in in many aspects uh and then on the other hand we have the current debate in the us about removing abortion rights Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. been some uh, some political talk in some states in the us about even removing the right to um uh, uh Oh, words in English, um, uh, preventative, like the pill or uh, uh, I, IUCs? IUD. IUD, yes, exactly. Uh, and that kind of technology and sort of limiting those technologies for, well, basically for poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're rich, you're always going to have an alternative, yeah, yeah. at least an alternative to travel. And this sort of current 
conflict about fertility and who gets to control it, I think is going to be really interesting in the coming years. Mm. I think this is going to be a huge debate. And because then you're also going to have a huge debate of where where does the state, so both England and Sweden have a, a really strong publicly funded healthcare. And there's already a discussion, at least in Sweden, of you know what are the limits of that healthcare if you're older and want to have a child or if you have infertility issues and want to have a child, um, should you offer surrogacy? What about donated sperms? What about donated egg? What happens in same sex couples? Sort of what are what are the limits of the public yeah. spheres financing and also control? Of these issues yeah if there are any philosophy um, students think, out there bioethics is the field to go into because it's going to heat yeah up. yeah and i think that 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 sort of this is a, a bit of a sidetrack but i think that issue of fertility and who controls it and and where you know when when does it get into sort of a commercial private sector space when is it a, like a, a health service space and when is it a legislative controlled space it's mm -hmm. super interesting right now so the ivf thing do you do you think uh you know 20 25 could be the norm by the middle of the century certainly for say like upper class women yes i i, I it wouldn't be surprised especially not so much using it as a way to reduce infertility yes uh, as using it as a way to reduce uh diseases or syndromes uh, or um, just gene genetic editing, yeah. Is there any way that the IVF process gets less painful? Because one of the things that amazes me is that, I mean, 10% is already incredibly high in Denmark, but it's a very, uh, so I found out recently that I was IVF um, conceived and my mum walked me through the process and I don't think it's improved much in terms of you know the hormones and the scraping of the eggs. Are we ever going to get to, I, I don't see how that process can be made uh, palatable, you know, how it can be uh, any less painful. No, um, I, no, I doubt it, sadly. Uh, and, and I don't think we're going to end up in, um, sort of, um, artificial wombs any, anytime soon either, mm -hmm. which is sort of the other big promise, uh, to some extent of, of controlling this issue. But I think what will happen is that there's going to be, you know, if you ramp ramping up um, the commercialization of these things, you're going to sort of see a push towards not really talking about those issues as much. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the nice spa treatment that you're going to get at our facility yeah. while you receive yeah. this service. We're going to talk about, you know, the wonderful options that you are providing your future child not really about, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that it's really painful. We're, you know, that sort of framing of it as the responsible thing to do uh, and the uh, luxurious thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a part in your book, isn't there? I, don't, I can't remember what country it might be, Japan, where you're describing the, the, the layout of this clinic. And you, you say, like, there are no sharp edges and, like, the, the furniture is all you know, very, you know, uh, what would you say? Um, it's just, like, all... I don't know, it's like ergonomic with a with a purpose of just making you feel relaxed and you know, the relieving anxiety. So, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that is the uh, the Brave New World vision. So we go to Mexico, 20 years time. Um, can 
I have a child. Um, can 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 I can I select embryos uh, for a one standard deviation gain in IQ? Do you think that's that's what we're looking at in twenty twenty forty five? I would say you're going to have a lot of companies that promise it, but okay. they're not going to deliver. So uh, what it turns so it turns out that genetics is really complicated. Human genetics really complicated. So. Uh, when when researchers started to really analyze the human genomics, uh, they were kind of looking for a manual, kind of looking for like this one gene controls this one trait and this other gene controls this other trait. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of these mm-hmm. straight lines that you would get if you were programming a, a computer or something like that. So sort of like um, Mendel's P's. I don't know if that's yeah. standard in the UK education, but in Sweden, we all do the P's and yeah. we do the eye color. Yes, charts. yeah, I think so. I think most people will be be aware. I think most people are now aware. Hopefully, if they've clicked on this podcast, that we've moved into like you know the behavioral ge- genetics revolution of like uh, they know that it's not one gene controlling. Um, you know, okay. Yeah, and but then it's thousands. Yeah, exactly. So so it it turns out that even for even for things that we think of as simple, say length, it's not. 20 genes. It's, yeah, it's about 700 genes lost count and a lot of other genetic materials. Um, So I think we're going to see a a scale. So we're going to have those really clear diseases or or syndromes or symptoms that we can very clearly cure, take care of specific genes, specific Mm -hmm. problems. Then we're going to have a set of genes that really change the odds again, most likely for diseases. So there's some genes that really pushes the odds when it comes to things like different types of cancer, um, but also heart disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson, a few of these others where if you have this, this genetic change, it's not guaranteed, but it's really pushing the odds in, in yeah. one direction. Those also going to have changes. Then we're coming into those there seems to be a strong genetic connection and we seem to be able to find a handful of genes that are responsible. So we're looking at things like um, maybe creativity, uh, some parts of mathematic ability, um, muscle body type things, like if you're a long distance runner or a heavy weight lifter to, to simplify it a lot. But, but those kind of things where you sort of Again, sort of pushing, pushing things a bit in one direction or not, depending on genetic markup. And there, we're also going to probably see some, some uh, at least some companies. I think here, this is about the point where healthcare is going to let go of this field, up to the point of like um, chances for big chances for serious diseases. That's that's the I think that's the cutoff point for healthcare. After this, we're in the private sector. Then you're going to have, you know, hair color, eye color, skin color, and you know, pushing, yeah, pushing towards music abilities, pushing towards, you know, long distance running, pushing Mm -hmm. towards a few of these other things. And then you have a set of traits, which include intelligence, that by now seems to be so incredibly complex that there are not going to be any genetic changes that can be done that will actually p- even push the odds in 
in either or direction. So the last article I read about genetics or, or intelligence specifically was that it seems to be, well, they call it like a whole genome trait. So it's a trait that is determined by like the sum of all your genes and their interconnectedness. So there is a strong genetic trait, but there's not one knob that you can change and get a different outcome. That's, that's really interesting. So, so there's sort of a scale there. But so, so how, so what's the context that um, you're, you're talking about that? Are, are we, are, is, so I, I assume that we can get to, um, you know, from the papers I've read on like uh, embryo selection, we can currently get to like a few points, maybe one, two, three points, and should be for, 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 for listeners, it should be worth stating that if you can raise the you know, actual G, not just IQ, like actual intelligence by three points, the, the mean from 100 to 103. I mean, uh, Murray and Hanstein talk about this in the bell curve. That's a 25% reduction in poverty. That's you know, a sub substantial reductions in um, women on welfare. I mean, it's just incredible what you can do with like three points, right? So a standard deviation mm. is, um, is 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 a, just a game changer uh, for at a, at a civilization yeah. level. And then at the, at the right hand uh, tail, where we're talking about you know, people who will have such, you know, it, 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 maybe it'll be that you know, um, you have thousands of John von Neumanns you know, uh, and Einsteins um, once you can do that after, say, a generation. So do, do you think that's possible? We're talking about you know, like five, six, seven, half think, a standard deviation. I think the risk is of going in the other direction, actually. Okay. Not, uh, not as a mean, but I think... So, so first of all, looking at the problem of using genetics to change intelligence compared to, say, creating a better educational system and making sure we take out lead from the environment, making sure all children have proper food. I honestly think we're going to reach a lot further with those societal changes than we're going to do with the genetic changes, at least in the, in the you know, coming hundred years. So making sure that every time is so complex from because it is so complex. Yeah. Uh, so making sure every child is well fed, well educated and in a, in a sort of poison free environment is going to, and that is going to raise a sort of a mean intelligence quite, quite a lot actually. But in a country like but, Sweden, do you not think we've reached like the phenotypic limit for um, most? No, of these? no, I don't. Okay. I, I, I really don't. Do you think there's um, low hanging fruit to be picked still? I, I still think there is, yeah, um, especially in, especially, and this is actually coming to the other point. So my fear that is that rather than create uh, a system that allows for these super intelligent individuals or for this sort of general sort of change and, and progress um, is that uh, the scope of what kind of variation we allow in humans is going to narrow. Mm -hmm. So, so, so say an example of this. So uh, there seems to be a genetic connection, uh, a strong genetic connection between a handful of genes and creativity. So there seems to be, you know, in, in theory, we could do genetic changes to make humans more creative. Mm -hmm. We can't do it now. I think it would be theoretically possible in the future and not even very far. Um, the problem is that some of these genes uh, or this sort of cluster of, of changes 
seems also to be connected to some uh, diseases, mental mental illnesses. Uh, and having presenting future parents with the choice of like, you can change these and it will make your child perhaps slightly more creative. It also increases the risks of um, these handful of diseases. Mm-hmm. A lot of the parents are going to go for the safe, op- safe option. I, I mean, I, kn- I know that if I was in that choice, it would be very, very hard for me to mm-hmm. not go with the safe option. And you might even end up with saying that, you know, we can see that your child have these genes. It means there's a probability of high creativity, but there's also a, a probability of these diseases. Would you like to change that? Mm-hmm. Would you like to lessen the risk of these diseases? And a lot of parents would probably say yes to that rightly i mean having that option it's really hard to to imagine a parent who would be like i'm happy with a 20 percent mm. chance of a severe mental illness or, or yeah, psychotic yeah. illness or something like that so that's the and, of restriction of range that could be worrying right because yeah and i think we're gonna seems to be like high end... iq plus creativity so if, if everyone's like i don't want any creativity maybe that means no more geniuses i don't know yeah and i think we're gonna end up seeing that sort of limiting scope of what we deem healthy or you know sane or acceptable in so many more areas of society and and you know and you can you can sort of see this trend from a lot of different perspectives you can see it in in how and where and why people choose medication uh, i'm i'm not really i'm i'm saying that using medication for mental illnesses is amazing and has really revolutionized the life for so many it is fantastic, but it also provides an, an even more limit, limiting scope of what is sort of acceptable human behavior, or what is you know an mm-hmm. acceptable way of feeling. And I think that is a trend that's going to continue. So we're going to have this sort of limiting sense of what it is to be a human, what kind of you know what kind of um, differences when it comes to seeing or hearing or speaking or walking are we going to accept? And as we limit those things, we're also limiting some of the things that we find really beneficial. And that includes sort of the real, that includes the outliers in every direction, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing about something like intelligence or creativity, right, is even if it's only a few points, um, and you can only do it in Mexico, there's like that com- comparative advantage that obviously economists talk about um and that that will exist presumably at a at a national level but then if every say say you have to be worth I know, a few million to do this um in the early 2040s um then it just becomes that uh that game of conformity right where all all the yummy mummies who live in Chelsea or Manhattan you know or the 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 people who within their social circle everybody is having a designer baby and uh, giving it an extra seven iq points and blonde hair um then it becomes kind of cruel not to do it right because then those the those are the kids that you're competing against and then once that becomes just the norm um to to not play by those rules is i mean that's why i say you if you're a philosopher be, be, be a bioethicist right because that's that's a fascinating um situation to be in perhaps in the year 2050 as a prospective parent who has to decide um 
whether or not to give their to select the embryo that's yeah. going to have seven IP points that uh, they created. And you're, yeah, and you're also going to have the choice of so say that it would be possible to do the seven IQ points. I, I personally doubt it, but say that it would be possible. Uh, it's not clear that that is the change you really want to make. I mean, mm-hmm. from a societal mm-hmm. standpoint, sure. But yeah. as an individual parent, is that really what you want? Is that, you know, with the risk of your child being not really being able to play with other children, no, so for an example, or, or would it be better to do athletic ability or would it be better to do, yeah. say, social ability or, or should you go for music? I mean, are, is it really? And will you see a we, class divide we, as well? You know, working class yeah. people. I mean, this this sounds classist, right? But actually, when I brought this up yeah. to friends, they said, I can imagine working class people being like, I want the next Lionel Messi. I want the next Cristiano Ronaldo. And then the upper classes, like the intelligentsia being like, I want, you know, the next Einstein. Um that's not, I mean, that, that sounds classist, but I mean, that I mean, yeah. cultural capital and cultural interests do run along class divides. It would be perhaps naive to think that it wouldn't, um, I mean, okay, you, it, it might be a bit odd to, to think that um, if intelligence is on the table, you, you'd be like, no, I'd rather have sporting ability. Um, but if it's a case of perhaps um, this is... Uh, you know, uh, a menu, and there are certain prices, and you've got to you've got to select. You, know, you can only pick mm-hmm. three things. Then you presumably would see um, uh, a wide difference in what people select for. I think so, and especially if you add on with the risk of, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you can increase you can increase disability, but it comes with the risk yeah. of those illnesses or other abilities that are maybe not as high status uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, just ending up, you know, with the risk of, you know, something completely different. Yeah. Some of these connections between genetic things are really unintuitive. Like it, 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 if it's not impossible to imagine that you can increase your intelligence and it comes with the risk of 20% increased risk of a specific type of cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These, these kind of connections exist as well. And then you're going to have a really real difference in you know how do you view these risks and and what are the sort of gained status and another thing that you're really going to see i think as as so we're already seeing this a bit because you can take those genetic tests that will tell you things like if you have a music ability or if you're good for Mm -hmm. different things and most of them are about as reliable as horoscopes yeah yeah to be honest they're not really good but so imagine that you're this um, high status uh, individual, high income individual, and you've just spent, you know, compared, say, you know, the equal amount of three years salaries on creating your perfect designer baby. And now this, this brat of a teenager that you've spent tons of money on to make sure they have a great music ability refuses to touch the piano. <laughs> will not touch the piano. Here comes Does the lawsuit. Not want to. Yes, there comes the lawsuit and against whom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you're going to see lawsuits um, where children are suing their parents. I mean, that I think so. must be on the horizon. I think so. And I think they're going to go in both directions. So I think you're yeah. going to have children suing their parents because of genetic changes. Like, you made me like this. You had no right to do so. I had no choice in the matter. I have suffered these consequences because of those changes you make. And I think we're going to see in the other uh, way as well. You choose not to do those changes. 
I have suffered these consequences because you did not change me. And therefore, I will sue you. I think it's going to go both ways. You know, I would love to talk to someone like David Buss about this, and I'm, I'm sure that you've got some um, fascinating views as well. What do you think about the role um, of... Or what do you think about the consequences when it comes to, um, like, dating and... Um, for example, you know, it's, it's said that women are w- women are the sex that selects, right? And th- so their whole job, a woman's job, is to uh, find... Um, the best genetic material that they can in in their partner, but if suddenly you can, if if that goes away, because you can just design the baby, um, I mean, how do you think that affects um, women and relationships? Yeah, I think that I think that's really good. That's going to be interesting, and and, and sort of it it might seem like a long shot, but I think it goes back to the question of abortion because it goes back to the question of control. Like, who mm. makes those choices? Who has control over the baby? who have control over the future generation. And I think handing all of that control over, handing huge amount of control over to women from men has traditionally not really happened in our society, sadly, over anything, basically. So I think we're going to have some societal Mm. issues about that. Yeah, Yeah, and I think, but I think, um, I think we're in a situation now where, for example, things like Tinder is already is sort of formalizing and um, cementing a lot of trends that have to do with seeing your partner really as sort of a checklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Tinder, the, the, the problem with too many choices, whether you're male or female, you have too many choices in the first in the first step. Uh, you have to start make really arbitrary rules for yourself some of them are reasonable some are not like some of my friends on tinder are like i will never swipe right on a man with a fish like those <laughs> this is my rule <laughs> you know it doesn't or if he's got say a dog anything. or a baby yeah, yeah, yeah. or exactly. a freckle there nope <laughs> nope uh, and uh i think that is a trend that we're gonna see in sort of partner choice even further with this technology uh, because you want to, even if you can change a lot of things, you want to sort of start, like if you start viewing this as a commodity, if you start viewing this as something that you pay for and it's a, it has a price and, you know, it, it's, you start, I'm not going to sort of romance, uh, make a romantic view of just, you know, having a child when you're 16 because you happen to have sex. That's horrible. No one wants that. But. There is also a risk in pushing children and family and partnership too far into a sort of commercial space. And I think that's going to be a risk. It's like, yeah, so hi, this is our third date. So I'm bringing this genetic testing kit just to make sure if you have any diseases in your family, here are my results. You can have a look at those. Uh, I also or more likely, want to do that's this. just uploaded to your Tinder profile, right? So you can see that. Exactly, um, exactly. And if, yeah. you, if you're not putting that on there, that's suspect. Why would you not put your, your exactly. um, what, DNA breakdown? What's your, what, are yeah, what, what are you hiding? Yeah. yeah. God, it's terrifying. I can see now why you're, there's such a mix of pessimism and optimism, because it really could go any way. I mean, I, I, perhaps that should, mm. we should uh, therefore move on to um, the 
the the pessimism and um, you know uh, how much of a role regulation can, can play. You've already said that you think there's going to be quite a well delineated line between what, um, at least in the West, is considered healthcare and what's considered uh, to be the the uh, under the uh, yeah under under the fall under the umbrella of uh, private enterprise and uh, will result in people flying out to Mexico. Let's break it down in that short, midterm, long term. Actually, I don't think we did long term for the for the uh, for the optimism side. So perhaps we can roll that in. No, yet. so yeah, so yeah, so so just a short, another really optimistic um, thing that we're going to mm-hmm. see, sort of midterm to long term, is um, is genetic engineering in things that are adjacent to us that are really going to make us better. So. This might be, this is sort of borderline dystopia, but I think we're going to see, you know, individually tailored pigs with organs for specific organ donations for individuals soon, 10 years, maybe 20, if you're actually going to use them because, it, you know, it's always a mm-hmm. push. Uh, so, so things like dying from lack of organs, donated organs is going to be a thing of the past, I think. Uh, then you can, you know, of course, have a this is an ethically kind of dicey problem, although we already use animals for animal um, testing in other ways, so, and we kind of eat them, so why would this be worse? But, you know, mm. uh, organ donations and um, also uh, production of pharmaceuticals using genetically edited yeasts or bacteria to produce the chemicals that we use in pharmaceuticals and a lot of other things also means that they're going to be a lot cheaper and easier to produce and easier to sort of make basically everywhere. So if you're uh, on Mars, you can have your own little um, CRISPR kit where you have Mm -hmm. bacteria that just grow happily. You happen to get a disease. You didn't bring every available medicine from Earth because that would be too bulky. So you can just download this specific molecule that you want to create, put it into the bacteria, they will create the medicine for you, and you can take it on Mars. That kind of you know, sort of body adjacent technology is also really going to be re- revolutionized by... That's 50 years? Yeah, or less. A lot less, actually. And that's I mean, also going, going to be... be... Gone. <laughs> Sorry, no, I interrupted. Uh, Go on, what were you going to say? Yeah, no, and I, I also th- that's also going to do things like so COVID vaccines. Um, there was uh, an, mm-hmm. an uh, 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 logistics issue that the fact that they had to be kept really, really cold. Right. Uh, you know, most countries managed to solve that really well uh, anyway. But uh, there's some research looking into you know if we could deliver this vaccine in a banana instead. Or if you could just grow them on site on every vaccination clinic instead of having to transport them, keeping them minus 80 uh, centigrades or, or things like that. Um, that's also going to really change. And, and those are there's going to be the small incremental changes that ends up mm-hmm. really creating a new world. What do you think uh, about uh, the implications for longevity then? I mean, in 50 years time, I'm going to be 80, turning 80. Um, can I look forward to living another 50 years after that because of this type of technology? Um, yeah, 
or at least 40, I would say 40. There is some, there is some really interesting debate going on now on whether or not there is an actual cap on yeah. human life time or not. And, and most people who believe that there is place it's a, around 120. Uh, but provided, I think this technology is going to, in, in, you know, a myriad of different ways, it's going to make sure that most of us will be able to live healthily past 100. Yes. And then whether or not that then we didn't keep pushing that boundary. If we can reverse. I'm not sure. But I think I think the real difference will be not maybe not the total amount of years, but the amount of healthy years. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. uh, so say that, you know, you're 80 and you go to your doctor and say, doctor, doctor, I'm really worried. There must be something wrong with me. I cannot run a marathon. Yeah. And then the doctor will be like, yeah, that sounds really serious. We can't, you know, we can't have that. Let's have a You're staying in overnight. <laughs> yeah. We've got to take some blood work here. What's going on? Yeah. Okay. So the, the pessimistic side, I mean, perhaps we should start with applications in, in warfare, because if you're talking about being able to deliver a vaccine using a banana, then I imagine then uh, we're talking about some very... Um, yeah, it's a very questionable technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Civilization ending stuff, right? Yep, that's. Um, um, I. I'm not as worried about that as I could be, but I am slightly more worried the last few months than I've been before. So, we humans have been really, really good for quite a long time now at not using nuclear arms like we've been we we have them and we're not using them we're doing really well in not using them up there have to been you some know close calls yes there has been some close calls and we're in a really close call now which makes me slightly more pessimistic but to some extent, that also gives me hope when it comes to those really dystopic uses of this technology. Mm -hmm. like it's, it's not, it's not going to be hard to develop some kind of smallpox, air, airborne. In your bedroom. You know, it's, it's, it's really easy to imagine all the horrible things you can do. It's quite easy to, to do. You could, you know, you could basically do it in any lab anywhere. We seem not to be doing that. Okay, and so let, seems... let's put the scenario to you first, and then you, because people might be like, well, but I don't understand how. So uh, ISIS, or whatever incarnation, mm. 20, 30 years, um, they are able to develop technology, say a virus, that uh, only targets, um, you know, let's say, somehow non-Muslims, or you know, what? I mean, obviously, this, I'm stretching mm. the, the, the boundaries here. Um, mm. Or people, people who they they, they you know there's some way to track who they don't don't want to kill, right? Um, perhaps they implant mm. something. Um, what what is the so with nuclear weapons? It's clear, right? You know, mutually assured destruction, and you kind of have to be um, a highly developed nation to have that technology. Although you know that's questionable even now with countries like North Korea and uh, you know, Iran. Um, when it comes to stuff that um, any particularly clever teenager can do in their basement what what is the uh what's the defense we have there what's the equivalent of israel's iron dome that shoots the uh you know, the rockets out of the sky 
Yeah, that is that is really an interesting question because, to, I mean, to some extent, we should have already killed each other at least ten times by yeah. now. Uh, if if that was the way that humans actually work, if if that was what people actually were doing, then yes. And is there a risk that people would do that? Yes, definitely. That risk exists. It's very, very, very hard to hedge against it, and especially really hard to hedge against it with you know other technology or sort of an arms race or, or things like that. Um, I I think there are some safeguards. Uh, one of them is that terrorism is usually or terrorists are usually honestly not interested in killing people they're interested in scaring people they are interested in the fear and the control that comes with fear it sort of almost lies in the name rather than to kill the maximum amount of people um this might seem like a really cold comfort <laughs> to be honest if someone was really holding this kind of technology over your head and say if you don't do this then we will release them um but 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 to be honest, if if ISIS main goal was killing the maximum amount of people, they they could have done um, a lot of things different compared to what they've been doing, and that is of course not in any way minimizing horrible things that they've done. Well, um, I, I, it does but, it does always um, strike me as odd when you think of how easy it is to, what well, again presumably how easy it is to kill people. That you don't see more. Either our security services are very, very good at their job, or um, there's something else going on there. I mean, the, the, these are people, uh, for the most part, who do believe. Okay, we're just talking about ISIS, but you could imagine any particular cult that believes 100% that you know, they are the chosen ones and everybody else needs to die. Um, and if they have this technology, then the question still remains: what what stops them? What is the safeguard? I know, and I, 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 I can't really, I can't really answer that. But there, there seems to be one, to some extent. And the Is other, it just surveillance, I think the, do you think we're, we're just, we're just we, we know no, who these think, people are? I think it's. I think that it actually turns out that there are a very, very small percentage of people who are prepared, prepared honestly prepared to be a suicide bomber, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, 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 I think it's easy for us to think that's common, and I, I don't really think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to actually standing there and actually pulling the trigger and seeing, you know, the child in the stroller right in front of you yeah, and yeah. seeing, you know, the, the grandmother with the bouquet of flowers that she's buying for her husband and standing there on that square and then putting the trigger. I, 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 well, I think that when, I think when it that's comes to really suicide bombers, to yeah, I, I agree. I think what, what, what often is the case is that a lot of the people who are suicide bombers don't even realize what they're doing, right? They're tricked into it because yeah, perhaps they're exactly. idiots, right? And they're, they're told you're going on this mission and they've got you, know, uh, you know, a ton of C4 in, in the back of the car mm. and that's remotely detonated. So um, again, the exactly. question, the and, question and doesn't think, go away with that, but it's it's perhaps, yeah, no. perhaps there is a positive spin that you can apply. I, 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 I tend to be a sort of uncurable optimist as well <laughs> when it comes to humans. So I think that's sort of what keeps me sane when I research this. And the, I think the other safeguard, honestly, is this sort of standing on giants 
part mm -hmm. is that, yes, theoretically, a lot of these things are or will be able to do in a basement, basically anywhere. Uh, in practice, uh, there's a lot of, um, oh, English word, um, like craftsmanship to biology. There's a lot of things that sort of, that you kind of have in your hands if you do lab work, uh, that it's hard to translate by text. It's hard to really transfer in any other places than educational milieus in different ways. And those will, to some extent, also act as safeguards. So, for example, I, for the book, I did some interviews with biohacking spaces in York. And those are theoretically those really dangerous places where, you know, anyone could come in and do and they have all the equipment and, and you know, it's kind of safe to order almost everything mm -hmm. to that space and, and everything is sort of in place. Um, but they have really, they're really, really good at just sort of, you know, it's a really chatty place. Everybody talks about what they're doing. If someone comes in and doesn't talk about what they're doing, they have a hotline to FBI kind of thing. So, so that sort of community, close community safe, safe God exists as well for a lot of these technologies. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are the, if you had to pick, you know, say top three um, reasons for being pessimistic, perhaps you've covered most of them already, but are there any others that you'd like to highlight? Surveillance. Surveillance, I think is, is I'm, I'm really, and sort of going back to, to China, what I'm really scared of when it comes to China is not that they're going to develop super soldiers, uh, genetic super soldiers or something like that. It is the fact that China uh, already has uh, genetic material covering most of their citizens. Uh, so, for example, the Uyghurs um, that are currently in concentration camps and used as slave labor and killed and all of that. They also there was also a new uh, news flash that all of all everyone that is belonging to this uh, religious cultural group have to do sort of forced genetic testing, sort of leave genetic material to the state in a forced way, which means that they can always be connected to crimes or that uh, or crimes uh, in quotation mark uh, in the sense. I know that China are trying to develop some kind of ethnical genetic testing material so that if you find genetic material on a crime scene, say for example, on a poster protesting the government, that you could, even if you don't have that specific individual, you could say that, yeah, this is Tibet, this is someone from Tibet or something like that. Um, and uh, it's already, you know, it's been really, really useful in crime investigation, but it's, it's already a situation where because people are related, it means that genetic material is related, which means that if I, uh, if I send in my, my uh, genetic material and uh, one of my relatives commit a crime, uh, it will be able to track not only me, but it will be able to track them mm -hmm. and sort of track down who they are. Um, this has already been done, and amazingly, in some cases, in the U.S., we found there were murders. Uh, in Sweden, there was a, um, those horrible, horrible rapes of small children of an unknown person who was um, now condemned, but 20 years later, because they found genetic material not from him, but from a relative of his, that they were able to connect to wow. the genetic material found on the sites. 
but this could, of course, also be used by China, for example. And that also means that you can sort of you can blackmail people, or you could uh, hold, you know, if, if you're an um, insurance company, you can change your insurance policy based on what's in your genes, uh, and, and so on. And I think that surveillance aspect of it is it's really scary. Yeah, the social credit system is uh, endlessly fascinating, isn't it? Uh, we obviously yeah. have the... the um what would you say, like the the seeds of it in in um, Western societies, uh, but there mm -hmm. it seems truly, already truly dystopian. And um, you know, it's, it's fascinating as to the the trade offs, right? Because this is a country like India um, that you go back a generation, twenty years, and you you will find that the people who you know today are living in Beijing as computer pro pro programmers. You know, their parents might have been you know, uh, rice farmers. So uh, the people are aware. They can speak to their parents. You don't have to, you know, they don't even have to speak to their grandparents. Right? They can speak to their parents to know what life was like. Um, and it seems that, um, at least from the outside, that most are willing to make this trade-off for now. Um, yeah. you know, there's also the question of whether there's a a cap on how much innovation is possible when you have that type of authoritarian totalitarian system right you need a kind of you need that um ability to try a million things let them fail and uh to 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 speak uh power to authority right and uh to to i mean that that's i think a lot of people thought that japan um in what was it that like the 80s or 90s would uh, overtake uh, america in many um spheres many technological spheres um especially like to do with automation and um i think uh you know automobiles and it didn't happen and i think one of the reasons it didn't happen was their their um underlying uh, cultural ethic of uh you know, a, lot, a lot more authoritarian than the american kind of like silicon valley style um and of course we are kind of in the west in the process of throwing a lot of this away as well so it seems like there's an arm race there's an ideological arms race of like how quickly we're willing to throw away our um inheritance and how quickly yes. the uh, the Chinese are willing to um, um, yeah progress with uh, pr perhaps transgressing these these th these ethical boundaries, but also um, yeah I, I, do, I mean do you think that there's a there's a a limit that exists in terms of um, you know that 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 relationship between authoritarianism and uh, creativity? Or going back to Definitely. what we were talking about previously, there's there's because science has become so, um, yeah, it's 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 not reliant on the genius anymore to perhaps be going against the grain. Um, you can just kind of make a lot of these discoveries with raw computing power and throwing a lot of shit at the wall and hoping that some of it sticks. Which is again, you seem to be saying that a lot of the um, advances that China has made is, is, is due to manpower. I mean, what, what do you think the future is in terms of the... Um... Like, if you're in a system where you're not allowed to make, make mistakes at any level, then there is a yeah, very, yeah. very clear limit to creativity. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's telling that China has been really, really good at application of research done in Europe or the US. They haven't really been that good at, you know, I wonder what will happen if I test this thing. Right. And that has right. two causes. One of them 
is the space to fail. And the other is that if, if you put a lot of prestige into your research, you also put a lot of prestige into the results. So if you have two researchers, one is like, I have this bacteria that is behaving weirdly in my yogurt. I don't know why. I kind of want to look at it. And you have another researcher who say, I want to develop a way to make a 10% increase in our ability to, I don't know, something. If you put a lot of prestige in your results, if you as a society are, are using this as a sort of societal status project, you're going to go with the 10% guy because you kind mm-hmm. of know what results you're going to get. Whereas the yogurt guy is the one who's going to develop CRISPR in the end. And I think that in Europe and in the US, we're, all, we're already pushing too far against the sort of application part of this, uh, even with our slightly looser structures. And as you say, we are also going in a more authoritarian direction, more sort of have, have, and this, it doesn't really have to be authoritarian in the way that we usually think about it. It also has to do with going into research with really clearly defined goals is a good way to improve things by 10%. It's not a good way to find new things. Um, and, and, you know, the structure of funding and this can get really technical, but I think there's a, a real issue of sort of moving away from curiosity and the sort of just freedom to explore the world. So to move this uh, into the end game, then what type of regulation would you like to see emerging? Because again, it strikes me like with, there's a parallel here with AI in that um, you're always playing catch up. Mm. Um, yeah, that's tricky, isn't it? Uh, well, I would, in, in the, in the ideal world, I would, it would be wonderful if an organization like the UN slightly, perhaps working slightly better than the UN tried to develop at least some global guidelines, at least some sort of, these are the, these, this is sort of space that we're moving within mm-hmm. um, to some extent. I think the regulations uh, are going to be really, really important, especially in the beginning when it comes to scamming. So I think the, the problem in like, the coming 10 to 15 years, the main problem is not going to be designer babies. It's going to be companies that promise designer babies and then steal everybody's monies. Um, and trying to regulate exactly what it is that you're changing and exactly what this means and sort of going in and regulate that private space, I think is really important. Uh, I really don't think a complete ban on genetic engineering on embryos, even if it can change sort of future generations, is a good idea. I think this is a t- technology that we should use, but we should be quite careful about who we use it. And I think the really, really, really tricky question is going to be who makes the choice. Is is this going to be because you can end you can end up in a situation where you say, um, where where the government says you know if you know that you have this genetic change in your family, you are not 
allowed to have children that carry that gene. Like that's that's one end of it. Mm-hmm. Like the state going in and, and doing sort of mandatory changes for specific diseases. I can see that happen in in some countries. And then in the other end, you you go to a completely private space, no regulation whatsoever. The only thing that matters is if you have money and you have no regulation on the promises. So it's up to the parents whether or not they do their research and get fooled or whether or not they do their research and end up with a child with a serious disease because they change yeah. too much and so on. And And finding a spot in that scale is really tricky. So I'm sorry if this is a non-answer, but... No, no. I think, the the I think question it's... of choice is hard. Yeah, I think it's certainly not a non-answer. It's, I think it indicates the uh, the difficulty of the terrain and how yeah how challenging it is to traverse. I think um, you know perhaps an analogy here. It sounds um, s- silly, but uh, you know I I have be, be, being in um, being being thirty. I have friends, male friends who were. Uh, you know, losing their hair in their early to mid twenties, right? And uh, they've considered going to Turkey, where they offer the hair transplant um, surgery for maybe a quarter of the price that you would pay in the UK. And of course, you can look at the the horror stories from from uh, people that go to Istanbul and they go to an unregulated clinic. But at the same time, you know, it's one of those things where I feel that crowdsourcing and you know, the wisdom of crowds and something like you know, looking at you know, the Yelp reviews or whatever for a particular Turkish surgeon, um, you know, someone that's done you know, a thousand of these operations in Turkey is probably going to be not, I imagine, not that much different to you know, someone in Belgravia in, in, in London um, and you're going to pay, yeah, again, a quarter of the price and you'll obviously pay a bit more than you would do from the unregulated guy in Turkey, but it's worth obviously going to the, you know, the, the premier Turkish hair surgeon. So I wonder if there's going to be kind of like that whether there will be that low end because people will just think that's far too dangerous and instead will actually over time just gra- gravitate towards that type of um, you know, uh, mid to high end service but for a, a lot cheaper you know, somewhere like a Mexico or Turkey yeah I think this I think that really depends on where what falls under sort of normal healthcare yeah yeah because it's like you the can logic imagine... of the free market, right? Isn't it? It's like, you know, yeah. can the free market solve that? Can it, it, all it takes is one review, one bad review, and then your clinic is shut. So if you've got a, a thousand, uh, you know, oh my god, this this surgeon was amazing. Like we got exactly the baby that we mm. wanted to. I don't know. I mean, that that sounds horrific yeah. to say. Let the free market decide, but maybe, but, maybe. Yeah, but I think you're also going to end up with a scale of how desperate you are. So say that right. you know, say that you end up with a situation where the healthcare takes care of you know, the really dangerous things and mm-hmm. the private market does the rest. Uh, or you have a, if you have a situation where the health, health, where the private market takes all of it, you're going to have people who are a combination of really, really desperate and really, yeah. really poor. And those are the ones who are going to end up in that sort of basement clinic. Yeah. Um, but if if you know that that sort of really baseline of the horrible or sort of really the really bad diseases are covered by healthcare, you're not going to have someone hopefully 
who is so desperate for blue eyes mm -hmm. that they end up in that basement. Um, because you have a, a, a social system that sort of takes care of the things that that are really life altering in, in that sort of sense. Um, so, so basically that would be, that's, that's what I think will happen at least in Sweden, in, in countries like Sweden and England that already has a strong healthcare system. And it's what I would hope for in a lot of other countries as well, that we can have that sort of baseline covered. I still think it's really problematic to, to put a class aspect and the market aspect yeah, yeah. and the rest of it, but I don't, I really don't want a market aspect on all of it because, because being in a situation where you're poor and desperate for one of those changes mm -hmm. is going to lead to some really horrible results, sadly. Well, on that appropriately uh, ambiguous note, perhaps uh, <laughs> we can end there. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Because I realize this is such an important topic. If there's anything we've missed. Oh, that's hard to say right now, isn't it? No, it's, I mean, you it's... did write a whole book. So if people, <laughs> if people want yes. more, they can buy the book. Uh, yes. So there's a lot of basically all of these <laughs> issues uh, yeah. covered in the book and a lot more aspects. Um, I can't, I can't really think of anything specific right now, actually, except okay. that, you know, I think there's going to be all of those like tiny, tiny, tiny changes in a lot of different areas is going to make this really change the world in ways that yeah. we can't really expect right now. So where can people uh, find you if they want to read more of your work? Uh, right. So the book is called Unnatural Selection of Our Species. Uh, I have a web page uh, that maybe you can link to under this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also created, uh, together with a designer, we made a small program where you can order your own baby and sort of try out this technology now and see what kind of choices you would be faced with uh, at orderdesignerbaby.com. I'll, I'll send you a link for that as well. Yeah. And also I'm on Twitter, uh, mainly in Swedish, but I will answer in English as well. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, I will uh, put all of those links in the, uh, in the bio. Toro, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've learned quite a lot. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time. Great discussion.